Luke chapter 4, going through the book of Luke, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are in verse 14. It says there, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you this morning wanting to experience all of you, wanting to know all that you have for us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just use this message that I wouldn't be a hindrance to speak to, to this group of people, to speak to my heart, Lord. Father, we came here not because we want to stay the same, but because we want to be more like Jesus. I pray that you do that work in our hearts this morning by your Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So we left off a couple of weeks ago in the book of... Uh, here in Luke in chapter 4, which was the temptation of Christ by the devil, Luke's account. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and when Jesus came up out of the water, he prayed, and in Luke 3.21, it says that when Jesus prayed, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days by the devil. And we saw an amazing parallel between Luke chapter 4, where Jesus was tempted by the devil, and Genesis chapter 3, where Jesus, were rather Eve and Adam, were tempted by the devil. Jesus was tempted in the very same way Adam and Eve were. What did the devil say to Eve in Genesis chapter 3? He said, take, eat. <laughs> what does the devil say to Jesus in verse 3? Same thing here of Luke chapter 4. He says, take, eat, command this 
this stone to become bread. Chow down is what he was saying. Disobey God. Obey your flesh. Your flesh is crying out. Obey your flesh. Disobey God. Same temptation. Only, of course, Jesus here resists the temptation. Not only that, he turns back the tempter. Jesus not only resists the temptation, but he turns back the tempter. How? By quoting the Word of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 8, he says, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Verse 12, Jesus says, it has been said, he's speaking all these words to Satan. And verse 12, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. The Bible says, do not tempt the Lord by disobeying him by obeying the flesh, by obeying temptation, by obeying the enemy. Verse 13 says, the devil departed from him. So Jesus not only resisted the temptation, he turned back the tempter. Now in verse 14, it says this, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, if you have a pen underlined in that verse, in the power of the Spirit, notice that in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then in verse 14, it says, He returned from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. He went in to the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he departed. He returned from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't miss this. Jesus was able to return in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Only because he resisted temptation and he turned back the tempter. If you give in to temptation... If you allow temptation to have victory over you, you empty yourself of the Spirit's power. It's plain and simple. It's as simple as that. You want to walk a weak, anemic, fruitless Christian life? Just let yourself get sucked into every temptation that comes your way. Of course, the beautiful news is that the child of, with the child of God, there's grace. There's always forgiveness, the opportunity to repent, to regain the power of the Spirit-filled life, but the principle remains allowing temptation to have victory over you will empty your life of power. But I love this. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he goes into the wilderness filled with the Spirit. In verse 14, he comes out of the wilderness filled with the Holy Spirit. Anyone want to match that life? Anyone want to walk that life? here. I love that. I love that picture. Don't want to miss it. So it says again, Jesus returning the power of the Spirit to the galley. It says the news of him went out through all the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by 
all. Let's just quick put up, the, do we have the map of, of Israel? So Nazareth, Nazareth is right above that little box that says Galilee uh, up on the top there. Jerusalem, way down there, uh, way down there in Israel. It's in the southern part of Israel. And then Galilee is up there, just to give you a little uh, vantage point. It says in verse 16, so he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, you talk about high drama. This is it. Jesus is quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapters 41 and 61, Old Testament. It's important to uh, also just point out here that in verse 17, they gave him the book, it says in verse 17, they handed it to him, and they weren't telling him where he was supposed to read. It says he found the place where it was written, and he read. So he chose the verse, and he deliberately went to them to read them, and what does he proceed to go read? He reads to everyone in this room verses that applied to the coming future Messiah. These were messianic verses. They were verses which described the Savior, the Son of God, who was to come. He reads them, and then he sits down with everyone looking at him, and he says, today these are fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am this guy that is described in the Bible. Now, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, there's a, a famous quote from Mere Christianity, a book. He was an apologist. He was a, a, a writer. He, 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 write, he wrote this book called Mere Christianity. At some point, everyone should, should try to read it. Don't know if we have it in the bookstore, but Mere Christianity. He says this, and this is C.S. Lewis writing. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is this. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And then he continues, C.S. Lewis. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. 
He's either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man Jesus was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend that. Pages 40 and 41 of Mere Christianity. Now, when he wrote that, C.S. Lewis, he's it has in mind verses like this that we just read about here in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is reading an Old Testament prophecy that describes the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And he's saying, I am that person. Verse 21, today this, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, again, if he says that and he's only a great moral teacher... That's a complete contradiction because a great moral teacher is not going to say, hey, everyone, just look at me. I'm a god. No, if someone came, around, uh, c- came along today and said something like that, we would think he was a poached egg. Nowhere do you see in verses 18 and 19. I, and before I w- we move on, I want to read these two verses carefully because in these two verses we have Jesus' own description of his ministry. And nowhere do you see in these two verses that part of his ministry was to be a great moral teacher. Might have been part of it, but he doesn't describe his ministry like that. Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed, they were great moral teachers in many ways, but supremely by Jesus' own words here in in Luke 4, that's not what his ministry was about. So let's read Jesus' own description of what his ministry was about. He mentions six different things. And number one, he says there in verse 18, again, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? What was Jesus anointed for? That word anointed means, you know, touched by God the Father for a certain purpose. Number one, to preach the gospel to the poor. The word gospel means good news. What is the good news? That though man lives under the sentence of terrible judgment because of his rebellion against God, Jesus has taken on that judgment in order to reconcile us to God. That's the good news. So number one, he says to preach uh, the gospel to the poor. Number two, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted. Oh, how Jesus weeps over the brokenhearted. Number three, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Apart from Christ, we are held captive to sin, to addiction, to self, captive to that unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. We're held captive to it. Jesus proclaims liberty to the captives. Number four, recovery of sight to the blind. If you count up Jesus' miracles, the most frequent miracle was giving sight to the blind. 
Now, part of that was because he, 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 wanted to, he, he wanted to bless. It's in his heart to love. It's in his heart to heal. But there was also the, a message in it, and that was, of course, that he's not only come to heal the physically blind, but it was also spiritual, spiritual blindness as well. The Bible says in John, actually, Jesus says in John nine thirty nine for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So he came that that those who do not see spiritually may see. Number five, Jesus describes his ministry there in verse 18 at the end to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus said in John chapter 8, He says this in John chapter 8. Do we have those? He says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That's John 8, 36. Galatians 5, 1, Jesus says this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of Bonded. So Jesus, in, in verse 18, describing his own ministry to set at liberty uh, those who are oppressed. The last thing he mentions in verse 19, number six, his ministry is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or to proclaim the year of the Lord's salvation. Jesus came to proclaim that the time of salvation is now. So verse 22 says the people marveled. Actually, they were stunned by what they heard. Uh, Here is this man looking them right in the eye and saying the prophecy of the Messiah is fulfilled in their hearing. Let's go to the end of verse 22. It says this. It says, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Wait a second. Who does this guy think he is? You know, we know this guy. We know him. He ran our streets. When he grew up, he's a carpenter's son. This isn't the Messiah. This is Joseph's son. Who is he kidding? This guy's crazy. And then Jesus responds to them in verse 23. He says to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Now, Jesus is a prophet. Remember, he's a prophet, a king, and a priest. He fulfills all those three offices of the Old Testament in one. That was what the Messiah was prophesied to be. Prophet, priest, and king. Here he's a prophet. He knows exactly what they're thinking here. He knows they're saying in their hearts, wait a second, is this not Joseph's son? And he says to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, physician means doctor. And and they're saying, say, doctor, You need to heal yourself, doctor. And that was a proverb used at the time meant for doctors who could, you know, they could heal others, but they themselves are sick, so why don't they heal themselves? I mean, what kind of doctor is someone who doesn't even know how to heal themselves? And then that's what they're saying to Jesus here. Uh, We hear all these reports of you healing people, Jesus, but you need to heal yourself. This stuff you're saying has got us very worried. You're a crazy man. So instead of healing others, heal yourself. They're rejecting Jesus here. And really, you know, they are rejecting him in the same way that anyone who has ever rejected Jesus 
rejects him. They are more or less saying to Jesus, they have just heard what he read, and they're saying to him, we're not poor, and we don't need the good news preached to us. We're not brokenhearted, and we don't need you to heal us. We're not captives. You don't need to free us. We're not blind. We don't need you to restore our sight. We're not oppressed, so don't li try to liberate us, and we don't need salvation. I'm not poor. I'm rich. I'm not brokenhearted. My heart is strong. I'm not captive to sin. I'm a good person. I'm not blind. I see very clearly. Save? Save from what? That's what the heart sounds like of every single lost man or woman. That's what it sounds like. I'm rich. I'm not poor. I have a strong heart, not a broken heart. Save? Save from what? Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't see or understand that you need to be saved. Saved from your sin. Saved from God's righteous judgment of your sin. The Bible says, Jesus says, you're hopelessly lost. In John chapter 9, Jesus said this. It, sa it says this. It says, then some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore, your sin remains. The Bible says, only at the point where I come to the Lord, where I come to God and say, Lord, I'm blind. I thought I understood life. I don't. I thought there was purpose and meaning in life. But as far as I can see now, life is meaningless. I thought I knew how to get to you, to know you, to find you, to please you. But now I don't have a clue. I'm blind, Lord. Please give me my sight. That is the cry of a person who is in the process of being saved by the Lord. Jesus said, I came to seek and save what was lost. Jesus says in John 10 that anyone who comes to him, he will not cast away. But the person who thinks they have it all together, who think they see so clearly that they understand life so perfectly, their sin remains. So let's get back to Luke chapter 4. So they go on to say in verse 23, first they say, you will, physician, heal yourself. And then they say, whatever we have done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. This is more or less Jesus, the prophet, telling them what they're thinking. <laughs> it's got to be a pretty freaky thing. He's telling them what they're saying in their hearts. And what's that about? Well, Jesus had done many miracles in a city called Capernaum. So what they're saying is this. You know, you need to heal yourself. There's something wrong uh, with you. But, but anyway, prove to us who you are, who, you, who you're saying you are. Let us see a miracle. You did miracles over there in those other places in Israel. This is your hometown. Come on, do some miracles right here so we can see. Prove yourself to us, to which Jesus responded in verse 24. He said, 
Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So any of you who have tried to share your faith with your family and who have been rejected, who have tried to share your faith with your friends, your old friends, and have been rejected, you're in good company. That's what happened to Jesus. He's sharing the truth with his family, with the people he grew up with, and they're rejecting him. And he says, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then he says in verse 25, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, with anger. They were furious. Verse 29, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, and they, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So what's going on here? Well, in verses 25 through 27, Jesus is confronting the people for their unbelief. So listen, if you walk away with anything today, please walk away with this truth from the Bible. God takes unbelief unbelievably seriously. <laughs> believing Jesus, believing the Word of God, believing the Bible is a really, really big deal to God. And at our Bible study in Dorchester on Wednesday nights, we're going through John, and in John chapter 6, some people come up to Jesus, and they ask him this question. They say, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What shall we do? What is God's work? What is the work of God? To which Jesus responds in John chapter 6. Do we have Jesus' response here? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. It's a pretty remarkable statement there. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. To believe in the one who, who he sent, who's the one he sent? Jesus. To reject Jesus, to reject by unbelief the one God sent. Oh, I believe Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I don't believe he was who he said he was. That's a big deal to God. And so Jesus here in Luke chapter 4, he confronts their unbelief here. In verse 25, he says, But I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the time of Elijah, 
when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. See, what's going on here? At this time in Israel, the time of Elijah under King Ahab in the Old Testament, there was a a three-and-a-half-year famine. And the famine was God's discipline of Israel. Yes, the Bible does teach that God does things like that. And when he does them, most of the time, they are acts of mercy designed to bring his people back. Israel had rejected God. It was chasing after foreign gods. Their lives had just become a miserable mess. God was trying to bring them back. He sends them a famine. But in spite of the famine, the nation carried on in their rebellion. Ever know anyone who did it was like that? Any of us like that ever at some season of our life? The thing about God, though, is that his, his nature is love. He can't help but love. That's what nature is. It means that you can't help but be who you are. He can't help but love. He can't help but give grace. So what does he do? He's being almost universally rejected by his own people. He goes outside his own people and finds someone else, and that is what he does here in the days of Elijah. Uh, He sends Elijah, the prophet, out of the nation of Israel to a region of Israel called Sidon, arguably the least deserving area anywhere in the world at the time. Who was from Sidon? Anyone? Jezebel. This was not a deserving place for God to go and find someone to have grace on. He goes to this place, and, and to the least deserving, he found, finds a widow there living in totally, a total obscurity, and he blesses her. The story is in 1 King, Kings. Wonderful story. His people don't believe him, but he will leave his people and find someone, however undeserving, who will believe him, who will embrace him, who will not reject him, who will embrace him. I think of the church in the United States of America, the body of Christ. So self-righteous. So much presumption. Just like the people living at the time of Elijah. We think we deserve God. We think, man, if Jesus came into Logan Airport, he would be making a beeline to our church. After all, we're the ticket. We, we really have our stuff together when it comes to God. God help us. Jesus says in verse 25, I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the time of Elijah, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath to a widow outside of Israel. Inside. That's what he's saying here. I sort of want to look at the other side of the coin now. I want to reflect on the widow for a second. And as I do, I have just a couple questions for you, for everybody in this room. I have a couple questions for you. And, of course, I ask this to my own heart as well. Are you a child of God? 
Bible says, if you, believed in Je- if you believe in Jesus and receive him, you've been given the right to be called a child of God. Are you a child of God? And if so, have you believed? Have you believed? Do you believe? Are you obeying what Jesus said? He says the works of God are to believe in Jesus, to believe in his word. Is your attitude towards God day in and day out? Is your attitude towards God like Israel's in the time of Elijah? So number one, are you a child of God? And number two, if so, is your attitude towards God day in and day out, is it like the attitude Israel had towards God in the time of Elijah? Well, of course I'm a child of God. I'm Steve Cole. I'm Sally Smith. Or is your, is your attitude towards God day in and day out like the attitude of the widow from Sidon? Yes, I'm a child of God, but I'm the least deserving person amongst the least deserving people. Which, is a, which of those two is it? Because... Which of these two you are, the person who says, of course I'm a child of God, I'm Sally Smith, or yes, I'm a child of God, but it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. I'm the least of the least. Which of these two you are will determine whether you, will determine what you're like day in and day out to those around you, whether you carry around with you the fragrance of death or the fragrance of life. Whether the people around you are going to be saying, get this self-righteous, religious, repulsive person away from me. Or whether they're going to be saying, wow, bring this kind, gracious, gentle person to me. Are we like Israel in the time of Elijah, thinking we have a claim on God? Or do we say, yes, I'm a child of God, but I'm the least deserving person amongst the least deserving people? Listen, what I'm talking about here is not some far-off theological, philosophical metaphysical thing that has no application to daily life. Your attitude towards your God will have a direct impact on everyone around you every day. Your attitude towards God is what's going to have the impact of people around you. You know, when I went to Fortaleza uh, last week, actually now was the week before last, but... um, I bought down an air conditioner. I mean, this place is so close to the equator. I, I don't do too well uh, in, in hot weather. And I bought down this air conditioner, this window unit. Mike McMillan, you know, packed it up for me, did a great job. Where are you, Mike? There you are over there. Um, and uh, I brought it down there, and I was just going to give it to him. And, and future gringos who go down, you know, can use it in the bedroom or whatever, or they can use it. <laughs> So I go down there, and I get to the airport in Sao Paulo. We go to pick up our bags. 
No air conditioner. So we call a few days later. We go into Fortaleza. We get there a few days later. We call no air conditioner. You know, I realized by this time I just fleshed out, you know. When you go to Fortaleza, you live like a Fortalesan. When you go to Rome, you live like a Roman, you know. And, and, and you know, there I was. So I, 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 I sort of got that. Okay, Lord, you know, I repent, this type of thing. And so I get back to Boston and uh, three hours sleep, you know, it was a night flight. And I go up to the... I won't name the airline. I go up to the person at, you know, the baggage desk, and I said, you know, here's, here's a baggage ticket. I, I had this box. This, uh, th- there was an air conditioner packed in it, and uh, it never showed up. And so this woman, you know, she types in the information, and she uh, looks up to me, and she goes, uh, well, uh, this, uh, the air conditioner was confiscated. It was thrown out, and you will have no reimbursement. And so I'm like, (laughs) wow. (laughs) And I hear the Lord, though. The Lord speaks to my heart. He goes, Steve, you know what's going on here, and you know how you're supposed to respond. (laughs) Don't tell me that. This sort of deal. And and look, I've failed a, a whole bunch of times in this area, but I said, okay, Lord. And she gives me the piece of paper, and I'm reading the instructions to her on how to interact with the customer to whom this has happened. And it's like, be very diplomatic with the customer and try to get them to understand. And so I just sort of read it to her and we sort of joke about it. And, and uh, you know, by the grace of God, I just blessed her. I walked away. Again, I have a long trail of failures in this area. But I'm just trying to give you in your impact on what your attitude towards God is and your salvation and whether you've earned it or not or whether you got it on the basis of the fact that you're the least deserving person amongst the least deserving people. It's going to impact how you treat people every single day. Not that there's not a time, by the way, to file some formal complaint, you know. Come on, couldn't you have told me about this, you know, up front when I gave you the box and you asked me what it was and I told you it was an air conditioner and you said nothing and you put it on the baggage line? (laughs) Not there's a time to do that in a, you know, in a very calm spirit, writing it down, you know, and submitting it. But listen, good works, good moral behavior, and this type of thing, every religion has them. But the distinctive of Christianity is that the Son of God left the glories of heaven and he came down to the world and he died on a cross taking on the sins of the world. And then he went and pursued you, the least deserving person amongst the least deserving people. And we are in this country. And he saved you. Paul says this. 
in 1 Timothy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That should be the cry of every believer's heart. Every believer. Luke continues on in verse 27 as Jesus is confronting their rejection of him here. And he says, And many lepers were in the Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Same thing. Naaman lived outside of Israel. Elisha, who, who followed Elijah. Uh, they're not the same person. Elijah came first, then Elisha. Elisha, same thing. Israel still sitting in their rejection of sin, this type of thing. And they go. Uh, rather, Elisha is sent to someone outside of Syria. Actually, this particular one, Naaman, came uh, to him. Verse 28 says, so all those in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath, anger. And listen, this is always the response. Always. Whenever someone who in their heart, they don't want to have anything to do with accountability towards a God. They don't want to have anything to do with an authority over them. They don't want to have anything to do with submitting their life to God. This is always the reaction. Always. Shut them up. Anger. Get them away. Gag that voice. Get them off the TV. Get them off the street corner. Get them away from me at my work. Whatever. Always the case. It's no different with, with, with us than it was for, with Jesus here. It, it says that they were filled with wrath. Verse 29, they rose up and thrust them out of the city. That's always what people who, uh, who are rejecting God they do. They want to throw out the truth. They want to discard it. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Actually, in the book of John, in a similar situation, it says they sought to take Jesus but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You don't have to worry about dying. You're not going to die one second before God wants you to die. And here you see Jesus, the, the very same thing. It says that uh, they took him to the side of the cliff, but somehow he passed through the midst of them and he went on his way. But what a message about the grace of God and the danger of unbelief. If any of you are sitting here this morning and you've never come to the place in your life where you've just gone to God and said, I'm the least deserving. I've done nothing to deserve anything but punishment and your judgment. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on the judgment for me, for dying on the cross for me. Please come into my life. If you've never said that prayer or or expressed that sentiment to God in some way. Talk with me after the service, or talk with, there'll be a couple folks uh, up here uh, after the service who can pray with you. It's a simple prayer of faith. Being saved by God is a simple prayer of faith. The Bible says, not of works, 
lest anyone should get to heaven and boast about their works. I'm in heaven because of all my good works. No. It's by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. And, and, and we get the gift simple by a simple prayer of faith. Okay, let's pray. If the worship team could come up. Father, we just thank you so much for this wonderful picture of grace. Lord, we also thank you so much on how you so directly confront unbelief. And Lord, I just pray for all of us here this morning that you would confront that unbelief in our hearts, Lord, and do it in a way that you feel needs to be done, Lord, gently, or in some cases, your word says you're severe, Lord. I, I, whatever the case, Lord, we want hearts filled with faith. We say like the the, this, the man in, in the Bible whose, whose son was, was dying, we say with him, we say, correct our unbelief, Lord. Correct it, Lord. But Father, we do thank you for coming, for sending your son into the world to die for us, to take the sin of the world on him and then to seek us out, the least deserving men and women amongst the least deserving people. And Lord, we want to live out our lives. Every interaction this week, every interaction today, every interaction with each other in our family, in our neighborhood, at home, at work, at school, with the right attitude towards you, Father, and, and with the right attitude towards our salvation, that it is by grace Father, we love you for what you have done. Thank you for just instructing us in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.